Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we go through the Bible book by book in a way that's deep, but also easy to understand. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Solid Life Whole Bible Reading Plan. We also have physical reading plans available in the lobby every Sunday. And don't forget, as you're reading along and listening to us, if there's questions that come up, we want to hear those questions because we take the last Friday of every month to spend time specifically answering the questions that come in. So feel free to shoot those questions to us at info at grove.church, or you can DM the uh, Grove Church Facebook page. And we would love to answer your questions. With that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump into this week's Bible talk. Uh, we're going to start off with the book of Isaiah, and this week we're going over um, a really big chunk of the book. And so there's two sections um, that you can kind of break it into. So the first one is going to be chapters 24 through 27. And uh, one of the books that I like to reference a lot when I'm when I'm studying is actually, um, and you know what, I, I would love to... Uh, have the name of it written down, but I don't because that's that's just how I roll. It's an Old Testament survey book that I use from from my Bible college days, um, but it describes this section as mini revelation, basically. And it's kind of interesting because with a lot of Isaiah, what you're going to see is um, the foretelling or God's judgment on Israel and Judah, and that is going to happen. Um, relatively immediately, and what I mean by that is it's going to be a few years down the road, but within the context of the grand story of humanity and uh, and the Bible, it's going to be right after Isaiah is saying these things that are going to happen. Chapters 23 through 20, 24 through 27, though, focus on um, basically the same time period that Revelation focuses on. So, it's talking about the end of time. It's really talking about um, when Christ comes back, all these different things. And there's a lot of, you'll see the phrase, in that day, a lot in those sections, because it's really talking about, um, it's talking about a day that is is far off, not a day that is close to uh, becoming. Uh, it's a really great section. And I wanted to highlight in that section, uh, chapter 26, verses 1 through 8, just because I think it's a really beautiful uh, section of hope in the midst of kind of the telling of, you know, God's judgment being poured out on the nations. Um, but it says in verse 1, In that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates, and the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height of the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor steps nearby. The path of the righteous is level. You make the level way of you make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. And I think my favorite verse, and I've actually used it, um, quite a few times. It's, I don't know why, but when I when I read through Isaiah um, the first time when I was younger, um, it's it's definitely something I've highlighted and always stuck with me. But I love the phrase, uh, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And I think there's just this beautiful picture of Especially at the end, at the at at the end of days, but also for us today, it's a good reminder to keep our focus on who God is. And the reason it says that you know God keeps him who's in perfect peace, whose mind is fixed on you, is not just because like you know if we focus on God, all of a sudden the troubles of this life fall away, um, but it keeps us in perspective. And keeping mm-hmm. our mind focused on God, keeping our mind focused on eternity and what is to come helps us realize that even the momentary hardships that we're going through right now, eventually in eternity, we're going to look back and they're just going to be blips on the radar. They're not going to be these major deals. And I, and I think it's um, 
It's just an important thing for us as Christians to keep in mind of where our hope comes from. Um, the next section that we're moving through in Isaiah, and I'll just go over it really quick, is chapters 28 through 33. Um, here the focus shifts from things that are far off in the distance to things that are uh, coming, again, relatively immediately. Um, there's final judgment pronounced really on Israel and Judah. Um, there's a lot of, I think they're called oracles within the book, uh, where it just kind of talks about what's going to happen. But it also interestingly ends with a, an oracle about Assyria, um, showing that it's not just Israel and Judah who are being judged, but also Assyria who clearly does not follow um, God in any way. I guess at this point, kind of Israel, neither does Israel. Um, but Assyria is also going to receive judgment. And we'll notice that after Assyria conquers Israel, um, they are relatively quickly also conquered by Babylon. And so that is kind of uh, that is kind of their fate. So it's an interesting uh, couple sections of Isaiah, kind of keep that in mind. Very poetic, um, but there's some beautiful language mixed in there. And, and as we're reading it, I would encourage all of us just to keep our minds focused on uh, what is to come and where our hope as Christians truly lies, and that is in the return of Christ one day. Yeah, and I think the other side in reading the book of Isaiah or a book like Isaiah, uh, and I might have said this when we talked about Revelation or not, um, but it's to to try and mentally stay engaged as you're reading it because you will get lost in the poetry. You will get lost in the uh, in the, almost the dramatic feel and and trying to recognize, okay, is this Isaiah speaking? Is this God speaking through Isaiah? Is this Isaiah's response to God? There's so much to it. Uh, and so you've got to be really diligent to really understand and get the most out of this book is to not just read it quickly, but try and read it as succinctly as you can. Uh, one of the, And we're going to continue uh, shifting into the next highlight for us. Uh, we're going to continue in the book of John, uh, and we're going to uh, spend some time this week Working through this book, I believe all the way up to chapter 13, um, and there's a section that I want to highlight because I, I think the beauty of this passage is actually, it's it's revelatory to that, uh, remind us and reveal to us that scripture is not necessarily always this book about doctrine. It's not about what should I believe and why should I believe it. That's a big chunk of it, and it helps set the foundations of our faith and practice as Christians, but there's a, a section in uh, at the very end of chapter 7 and the first 11 verses of chapter 8, uh, that in some Bibles you'll see that it will say earlier manuscripts do not have this section, chapter 7, verse 53 to 8, verses 11 in the earlier manuscripts. And it, I remember reading it as a kid, like, well, should I not be reading this portion of the Bible? Uh, I remember as a pastor early on, should I not preach from this portion of the Bible because we're not sure it was in earlier manuscripts? Uh and so I, I think it's important to take a few minutes and almost highlight this passage of scripture because it's, I do think it is a beautiful uh, demonstration and picture that reminds us of God's character through Jesus, that reminds us of uh, Jesus and what he came and what he lived and, and his heart for grace and truth. Uh, but a couple things about this section is it's included uh, in this sequence uh, that you'll find coming out of chapter seven and ver- into ver- or chapter eight, uh, but it, because it did not belong to the original text, uh, we have to remember that it is it doesn't mean it's not historically accurate. Uh, the truth is this passage uh, did happen. Jesus interacting with this woman did happen historically. It's accurate. We can learn from history. We can learn from Jesus' interaction with people. Uh, but one of the things that uh, scholars and commentators would say is uh, it's it's probably something you shouldn't build a lot of doctrine just out of this passage. Uh, it should be a complement to doctrine that we build uh, out of Scripture and, and the authority there. Uh, but it does, I believe, reveal it. A, a, a deep need for grace and understanding this conversation of grace and truth in our approach and response to others. Uh, And so I just want to read, I'm going to read just chapter eight 
uh, verses 1 through 11, which is the last part of it. Uh, but it just says this, says, but Jesus went to the Mount Olives. Uh, at, the, at dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down to began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery, which the interesting thing is it's they had to have set up some kind of trap or it, it almost has this agenda and this hidden motive. And so how could they bait and switch and bring it as an opportunity to catch Christ? Uh, in, also, where was the guy? It usually takes two to commit adultery. Yeah, that's what, at least that's my understanding. I've not done it and I hope to never do it, but that's my understanding. It does take two. In theory. Uh, in theory. Uh, today, anyways. Um Verse five then says this, and the law of Moses, this is still the, the religious leaders talking to Jesus. It says, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked him this to trap him in order that they might have, have evidence to accuse him. So Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When, when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up to her, or when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go from now on and do not sin any more. And it's this incredible picture, I think, for you and I to be reminded this is what Jesus came to do. He came to reveal grace and truth. It wasn't grace or truth. It wasn't a balance of grace. It was a full measure of grace, acceptance, love, and invitation to belong, and this full measure of truth. Now go and live according to the grace you've received. There are certain requirements and responsibilities that we have as people when we encounter God's grace to live in response. And Jesus didn't shy away from it. To tell a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, there's a couple different things we can think about this woman and what her lifestyle was. But at the end of the day, it's, I'm not going to condemn you, but go, go and don't sin anymore. Go and live in response to the acceptance and the belonging that you now have in me because everybody else was out to get her. Uh, and the other significant piece of this is says that they left, they left one by one dropping the stones, starting with the older men first, because the older men, the older leaders had more authority. And as they would step and fade away than everyone else, like the oldest and most authoritative leader in that, in that group had the absolute say. And the moment he backed out, everyone else was like, well, I can't do it. And so they followed suit because of that recognition. Well, I um, think there's also, um, just the phrase that he who's at the sin cast the first stone. I think there's a certain level of um, age teaches you a lot more about your flaws. And I think, oh, yeah, I think true. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of temptation in youth. Just think of yourself as like, I'm awesome. Like, you know, I, I've messed up a little bit, but it's nothing big deal. Whereas the older you get, the more you kind of look back on your life and, and you think to yourself like, Oh, like I'm, I'm definitely not, I'm definitely not without sin. And so not that, you know, the Bible doesn't say definitively why um, they leave in a certain yeah. order, what is, but I'm sure that was also a part of it of um, the oldest person there would have certainly understood uh, looking back at, at his life, like, hmm, I, I'm not worthy to cast the first stone here. Yeah. And it's, yeah. I, so I just think all the while it's not necessarily in the earliest manuscripts, so we shouldn't be building things out of, it's not, it's still something to learn. It's still something to see the heart of Jesus as he interacted with people, uh, and it's such a good reminder and challenge. I mean, there's so much that this verse and this passage can preach on in our own lives, but uh, I just thought it would be worth bringing up because it has that that uh, qualifier, if you will. Right, and one of the one of the ways that I've had it kind of explained to me that I think is really helpful is um, 
one of the reasons we don't necessarily have to be afraid of this passage is because nothing in it contradicts anything else in the exactly. Bible. If there was, then that would be something really to talk about. Um, that being said, one of the things that I always try to do is um, not lean on this passage with something that I'm thinking. So if I have a thought about, you know, whatever whatever it may be, and, and you know, the main themes of this passage are, uh, you know, forgiveness of sin, none of uh, no one is righteous, not even one, like all these different things. Well, those are things that you can find elsewhere in, in the Bible. Yeah. And so, yes, yeah, so like when I'm speaking or it's teaching, a good compliment. Um, and and doing things like that, I'm always making sure that this isn't my main passage that I'm anchoring on. I'm anchoring on something else, and maybe this is a supplement, maybe it's not, whatever it is. Um, but every theme that you find in this passage, you can find elsewhere in Scripture, um, just as clearly laid out. So yep. that's kind of uh, what I was thinking there. Uh, moving forward with the Bible talk today, we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians. Um, and I thought this is kind of, again, I'm actually highlighting it just because it's a, it's a really interesting um kind of a side that Paul gives here, but he's talking about lawsuits, which I thought was kind of an interesting. Hmm. Um, and if you read through first Corinthians, there's a lot about, you know, just, I, I think it's kind of sandwiched around sexual immorality. Um, and before that we talked about you know, like unity and division, in the church, which yep. I think the first time we went through first Corinthians on the podcast, that's what we hit on yeah. in, in this highlight. Um, and I really just want to talk about it because you can be reading through it and then you get to this section and you're like, well, hold on. What does this have to do with with anything? This is a really weird thing. Um, so I'm just going to read uh, eight verses here and then we'll kind of talk about it for a little bit. Uh, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go before the law, before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this is to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but the brother goes against brother and before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with with one all oh my goodness uh, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather <laughs> suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves are wrong and defrauded even by your own brothers. And so, um, it's it's kind of just an interesting aside. And so, a few things right off the bat. Um, the main, I guess, what the the main thing that Paul is explicitly saying in this passage is that when trivial things come up that can just be solved um, within the church without involving the outside world, the outside core, then that, as Christians, that's what we are supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and he does use the uh, the case trivial, so we're not saying you know like someone in the church you know commits murder or whatever it is, and you're like, well. Let's just settle this between us. Yeah, like, no, there's obviously some things uh, that would not fall. Let's figure this one out. <laughs> Let's just talk this through. We don't but, need to bring the courts in. Um, there's obviously things that would not fall into the trivial cases. But at the same time, Paul is asking Christians to look through the lens of, you know, what can we solve within the church? And, and really, it's this idea. And I think as Christians, um, we don't think through this lens very often. Or I should say, you know, as modern American Christians, because that's just the culture that we're attacking yeah, it from. Um, we don't th- think through the lens of how does this make the church look? And and I know it can almost feel kind of slimy to say that a little bit because you know I, I think we we um we put forward being real and being genuine on this large pedestal, which those are important things. But there is something to be said too for like you know doing things in a way of reputation. Like for instance, um. 
you know, me and Aaron both work at the church. If if we have some beef between us, I'm absolutely willing to be wheel uh, to be wheel to be real to be wheel. Let's be wheel. <laughs> Let's be wheel with each other. Um, but no, I'll be real and genuine with with Aaron, and we'll talk. And we've talked about before, you know, like, hey, I disagree with you on this. What are those different things? Um, but there's a difference between that and then also me going to people, um, particularly outside of the church, but even outside of the staff, and and also venting my frustrations that yeah. I'm having with Aaron or whatever it is. And that's kind of what Paul's talking about here is. Um, the way that we present the church to outsiders should be in a positive light. Does the church have flaws? Absolutely. And the reason it has flaws is because, because we're we, in it. we are the church. The church <laughs> isn't the building. We have flaws. Yep. Um, that's the way it's going to roll. <clears throat> but we should always, as Christians, be putting the church forward in a great light. And and part of that is settling disputes um, basically as graciously as possible. And I, even at the end, he says um, – to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And even in that moment, he's saying, you know what? Like, if someone's doing something to you, why not just take it? Like, why do you have to go out? Why do you have to involve the courts? Why do you have to um, allow the name of Christ really to kind of suffer in, in those instances? So, and again, I, I, I want to be careful in saying, like, you know, the word trivial is used. There obviously are bigger things that um, that do need to be solved yeah. outside of the church. But as far as disputes and arguments and things like that, as, as Christians, we really do need to think through the lens of how can this be solved just between us, how can this be solved within the church? And then how does this make the church look when I make decisions to really just defame other people? Yeah. Well, and it's crazy because, it, I mean, go back to when we first started talking about First Corinthians, and there is this this tension that Paul brings talking about unity. And, and if I'm going to be honest with you, most of what cre- creates tension or even um, dissension among me and other people that I you know, would call my church family is trivial. The majority of the things that I find uh, man, I, this is something I feel like we could talk about forever. Yeah. Uh, but the more the more that we find uh, a, a grievance, or even whether, whether it's trivial or whatever, it's creating disunity. It's creating dissension, and we are called to be the church. We're we're ambassadors for Christ, and the the issue Paul's attacking again is simply who are you representing? You are you are the church. You are Christ. And oftentimes, because of our own trivial nature, our own trivial realities, uh, and our own even selfish arrogance, I'm raising my hand first. I'm not calling anybody out. Uh, but we find, I find that 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 is what is the, the one of the chief um, chief problems with with disunity in the church and disunity among people. Anyway, sure. there's all these little trivial disputes, and so uh, it's it's a challenge. It's, I mean, how many times do I how many times do I get upset over something trivial in my family? Uh, let alone the Evan, because he has a better beard than me, or whatever. Like, well, you know, uh, not everyone can be Evan when it comes to his beard. But so. it's, yeah, it's something that it's interesting because we don't talk about it very much. But no. it, is, it is a really important lens for us as Christians to be looking through. Yeah, it's yeah, so it's yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great thing to bring up for sure. Um, we're going to be jumping into Psalms as well. There's a few different Psalms we're going to read uh, this week, but I, I want to specifically highlight Psalm chapter four. Uh, it's a short little Psalm of only eight verses. Uh, but the thing that why I want to highlight is because uh, in the world we live in, uh, there is a lot of um, circumstances that will attack or or present to be an obstacle to our trust in who God is. Uh, and that's the thing I like about this psalm is that it, it really is a psalm that expresses quiet trust in the midst of troubling circumstances. Um, and it combines this idea of a lament also with confidence and this lament of 
crying out to God in the midst of circumstances that are unfair or unjust or un, uh, you know, unneeded. Um, but there is this on the other side of it is there's, there's this underlying confidence. And so I just want to read this real quick because I thought it would be uh, important today uh, for whoever's listening. Uh, if you're listening in New Zealand, you're welcome. This might be for you. So it says this. Uh, it says, answer me when I call. This is the psalmist writing. This is David. He says, answer me when I call God who vindicates me. You freed me from affliction. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. How, lo- how long, exalted ones, will my honor be insulted? How long will you love what is worthless and pursue a lie? And then it has the word Selah, which just means a pause. And it says, and then he continues on, verse three, he says, Know that the Lord has set apart the faithful to himself, for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin on your bed. Reflect in your heart and be still, Selah. Notice the change in the conversation. David's crying out. And then there's almost this exhortation to not just himself. It's almost like his self-speaking moments. But I think it also applies to us today. Verse 5 says, Offer sacrifices in righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, Who can show us anything good? Let the light of your face shine on us, Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. I will both lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. And I just love the picture and the and the the conversation David's having really with himself, but even with you and I today, uh, in that there is things worth crying out to the Lord and saying, God, answer me, vindicate me, fight for me. Uh, but it's in that moment you also realize, God, thank you for who you are. I'm gonna I'm gonna celebrate you. I'm gonna be reminded of who you are because you set the apart the faithful for yourself. Um and then I love the promise. I love the, the, the hope that he clings to that I think you and I get to cling to today too. It says this, I will both lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, Lord, make me live in safety. So I just think it's a cool uh, passage for many of us, a cool chapter that we get to read this week. So as you read it this week, I hope it encourages you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And that actually uh, wraps it up for another episode of Let's Read the Bible. Uh, just a quick reminder that we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only podcast of the Grove Church. You can check out all of our other resources and podcasts on our website at grove.church. Um, and also do us a favor, leave a five-star review on whatever device you're listening on. Uh, it just helps to get the podcast out there and, and really grow this community of people reading the Bible together. And with that being said, we will see you all next week.